sorry, I saw these really weird cookies the other day that I was like, oh, people do this at home that were like sugar, sugar cookies and they were hands, but they, they were like those cookies, you know, it's a sugar cookie and a sugar cookie with jam in the middle. There's a name for those. And anyway, they had cut out a hole in the middle of the hand and put like red jam in it and they were stigmata cookies. And I was like, I got my lint game, y'all, you know, so. Hey there, welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm your host, RJ Heyman. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, David Zoll and Sarah Condon. We come to you every other Friday to explore some of the ways in which we see grace and its absence or opposite playing out in the world around us. We're so glad you joined us. Well, my friends, Sarah, RJ, I don't know what it's like in Houston, but here in Charlottesville, it is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And that is my extremely cheesy intro to this podcast, simply because we're going to start out by talking about Mr. Rogers. The trailer for the Mr. Rogers documentary debuted this week, and it's been sent to me by nothing short of 15 people. Mr. Rogers kind of representing all that is good and holy in the world. From what I can tell, there's nothing coming out or anything. I mean, I think everyone's sort of holding their breath, but it seems like he was this almost unassailable, wonderful person. Give it time. Um, what? Give it time. I was going to say, my wife was like, please, please let nothing come out about Fred Rogers. Please, please. We need somebody. Just throw us a bone. You know, God. I know. Especially all these men, these bad actors out there. It's like, you feel people almost scrambling for Fred Rogers as this saintly figure, yeah. which he's been ever since. I mean, I was aware of him first as a kid, as just Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's just something that was a part of the kind of constellation of childhood. But it wasn't until I got older and maybe stopped watching. Stories would filter out that he was this man of principles until YouTube began and especially his testimony before Congress or the Senate, whoever mm. it was, that senator almost like breaks down in tears after he talks to him about being a child. That was when it first started to dawn on me that this man was something special. And then with your ear to the grindstone and over the years as we've like looked at pop culture related stuff, it seems like every couple of years there'd be some incredible story that comes out about Mr. Rogers. And then, you know, my kids are of the generation that watches Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. And that was like mm-hmm. a big deal and a kind of continuation of Mr. Rogers. Jonathan Adams, who RJ and I work with, came over to my office this afternoon. And Dave, he wanted me to give you a message, which is you have to stop putting Mr. Rogers stuff on the website because it's making him cry in his office. Yes. <laughs> um, no can do. Like, no can do. Yeah, exactly. He's, he, you know, I was born in Nashville and my mom worked for public television there. So we were like all in with Mr. Rogers really early. And my kids watch him now. So we watch like old Mr. Rogers. He's so gentle. I mean, if you read a lot, even about the way that he speaks, you would think that kids now are so overstimulated. There's no way they would want to watch it. And it's like super soothing for them still. So I think that stays with me. And But also just the sort of like upside down nature of his 
pastoral approach to things. Like they show this clip, I think in the trailer of a really famous episode he did. And it's one that I remember seeing as a kid in reruns where it was around the time that pools were being integrated and black children were getting into pools. And they show that awful footage of people trying to pour bleach into the pools. And he had a black police officer on and he had a like a little baby swimming pool and they both rolled up their pants and they put water in and they talked about friendship and they talked about love. And like, that is, I mean, I think we're all craving that, right? Because we see all this injustice in the world and what our instinct as our sort of like sinner's instinct is to just try to yell louder mm. and to see this guy make such a gesture of humility. It's just jarring. And I feel like that's why he's so beloved. It's just jarring. Mm. And he washes his feet. He actually dries his feet off. Francois yeah. Clemens. It's iconic at this point, but I didn't know about it until a couple of years ago. I don't remember seeing it on TV, but uh, RJ, do you have a history with Mr. Rogers at all? I definitely remember watching him when I was, you know, four and five years old growing up in Connecticut. I don't remember him handling any of those heavy issues that the trailer brought up, like divorce and assassination and uh, racism. I just remember kind of Lady Elaine in the land of make-believe and, and um, was it King, I don't know, King Friday or something? I can't mm-hmm. remember the names. Prince Friday, um, maybe? Yeah. Anyway. Was it Prince? I can't remember I what it was, but Wednesday, there's a remember- Wednesday and a Friday. Yes. <laughs> okay. I remember loving that. Uh, I do remember just loving the show. I will say, I also watched the trailer a bunch of times and I can't help but tearing up because the world that we live in right now, which is so harsh, is so strident, where there is no room for compromise, no room for mercy, no room for grace. The idea that someone would talk so unabashedly about unconditional love and gentleness and respect, your heart just pines a little bit for something like that, which is why the timing of it is perfect. It did also make me think, now that we have an 18-month-old starting to go back through some of the old videos that we used to watch with our older kids, and the ones that our older kids remember loving as we're watching them again are the gentler ones, like Little Bear, you know, the Maurice Sendak uh, animated series with the beautiful classic music. It's not the crazy, frantic... The Pokemon? They didn't like the Pokemon? Yeah. Not so much the Pokemon. No, like the the Maisie the Mouse and uh, Little Bear. And they're actually, my older kids are really enjoying watching those again Mm -hmm. with Marshall. It, It also makes me think just about my own parenthood honestly, and whether I create a haven of peace and comfort in our own household, I don't think I do. <laughs> you know, but I want to more. You know, yeah. I, I want to create a place of peace. Mr. Rogers talks about that, that being what children need, and I think that's exactly right. You know, they like excitement in the moment, but what they really crave is peace and comfort and security, and that's what we all want, isn't it? Yeah, I feel what people are responding to in this video is, yes, maybe there's a little nostalgia, a little bit of yearning for their own childhood that's been lost, but the thing that came across to me, it sounds increasingly like you cannot talk about Mr. Rogers without it devolving or evolving into hagiography, or at least something very Christocentric. I think what people are responding to is how the aroma of Christ, you know, that's the religious word for it, but he seems very Jesus-like. I think the first lines in the trailer is that one woman who worked with him saying, you know, take everything that was considered to be a good idea about producing children's (laughs) television and then do the opposite of it. Mm -hmm. And that's what he did and it worked. I mean, that is kind of a Christological 
theological statement, a kingdom of God kind of thing, that this thing that shouldn't work, that that all conventional wisdom says no, that you need to entertain children, that you need to talk down to them, that you need to really not come alongside them, but maybe even be across from them. I mean, it seems to be really contradictory to Hollywood, but also just our natural human instinct. The fact that he would never sell any children. There's an incredible story I heard the other day, yet another one. Did you hear about this, that Burger King in the 80s produced an advertisement with a Mr. Rogers impersonator. And the impersonator was so good that everyone thought it was Mr. Rogers, but everyone that knows Mr. Rogers knows that he was as basically the most trusted man in America. He would never sell anything to children. He said, I just, that's, I refuse to do that. So instead of lawyering up and getting upset, what he did was he called the guy who was in charge of marketing at Burger King and who had done this. And instead of talking about the advertisement at all, he went on to say, you know, I I really love children and I know you do too. And we all know that it's important for children to respect their parents' work. And, you know, it wouldn't, how sad it would be if if a young child thought that there was something deceitful or dishonest going on in their parents' work. They both agreed about that and they sort of chatted for a little while and then Mr. Rogers got off the phone and then like the next day, the head of Burger King says, stop these commercials, burn all the tapes and never air it again. Like he didn't say don't do it. There was no law law actually involved and I don't, doesn't sound to me like a ruse. He was really concerned about the man who had authorized it, possibly sending a message to his own children that dishonesty and deceit would be a good thing to do. And I mean, can you, can you believe that? I mean, he really That's did. Nuts. <laughs> no That's lawyers, nuts. no litigation. It right. reminds me when John Boehner met with Pope Francis, remember, and like quit the next day. Yes. And was just yeah, like, yeah, I'm, yeah. I, you know, and who knows yeah. what they talked about, but you didn't get right. the sense that Pope Francis was like, you know, you're, you're harming the world. You're, it was just, you know, right. I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like this, right. this is not real. This is not true. This is not good. I'm out. Have we put the clip up of Mr. Rogers on the Arsenio Hall show? I don't think so. No. What happens there? I just, well, I just watched it today. Exactly. He comes out, he gives, you know, Arsenio Hall was the early nineties. And so he had those like weird leather jackets with like animals on them and all different colors. And so he gives Mr. Rogers one of the jackets and then they sit down and they talk about the LA riots because it wow. was during the LA riots and how important it is to care for children in the midst of turmoil and how if there's one child in your life that you pay special attention to, how valuable that is. And then there's that quote that we see so much. Mr. Rogers quotes his mother and she always says, you know, when there's a great catastrophe, look for the helpers. Well, that quote is from that show. It's from the LA riots, which is super powerful. And I had no idea. Um, And then Arsenio Hall, he ends it in such a lovely way. He's like, this is like the perfect guest for this. And I just love that, like, in the middle of the L.A. riots, Arsenio Hall is like, you know who we should have on to talk to us? Like, that's just incredible to me. And it also says to me that Arsenio or somebody who worked for him actually does remember the swimming pool episode and does remember the episodes about death, you know, that mm. it that it resonated enough with them that they said, this is the guy who explained hard stuff to us when we were little. Like, let's have him do that now. Wow. So you know that his apparently his mother made all of his cardigans. Really? Wow! Are you serious? I'm not serious. I mean, I have to tell the story. Two stories that I'll tell, but then we'll move on because you could do a whole podcast about Fred Rogers. We should. We should just. 
cut everything else. The first, of course, is that wonderful thing we posted on the site a couple of months ago about Coco the gorilla. The story goes that there's this young boy with terrible case of cerebral palsy. He was very unkind to himself and was known for sort of getting into fits of rage. And the only thing that calmed him down that he liked in the world was Mr. Rogers. And then Mr. Rogers, he couldn't travel to go to Pittsburgh to see Mr. Rogers. So his mother finds out that one day he's coming out to California to see Coco the gorilla. And through some institution like a -a make-a-wish thing, they get Mr. Rogers to come to the house. And I'll read from here on. The boy was made very nervous by the thought that Mr. Rogers was visiting him. He was so nervous, in fact, that when Mr. Rogers did visit, he got mad at himself and began hating himself and hitting himself. And his mother had to take him to another room to talk to him. Mr. Rogers didn't leave, though. He wanted something from the boy, and Mr. Roger never leaves when he wants something from somebody. He just waited patiently, and when the boy came back, Mr. Rogers talked to him, and then he made his request. He said, I would like you to do something for me. Would you do something for me? And the boy can only communicate through a little computer on his arm. He says, of course, I'd do anything for Mr. Rogers. So then Mr. Rogers says, I would like you to pray for me. Will you pray for me? And now the boy didn't know how to respond. He was thunderstruck. The boy was thunderstruck because nobody had ever asked him for something like that, ever. Mm -hmm. The boy had always been prayed for. The boy had always been the object of prayer. Now he's being asked to pray for Mr. Rogers. And although at first he didn't know if he could do it, he said he would. He said he'd try. And ever since then, he keeps Mr. Rogers in his prayers. and doesn't talk about wanting to die anymore because he figures Mr. Rogers is close to God. And if Mr. Rogers likes him, that must mean God likes him too. As for Mr. Rogers himself, well, he doesn't look at the story in the same way that the boy did or that we do. In fact, when Mr. Rogers first told me the story, the reporter, I complimented him on being so smart for knowing that asking the boy for his prayers would make the boy feel better about himself. And Mr. Rogers responded by looking at me first with puzzlement and then with surprise. Oh, heavens no, Tom. I didn't ask him for his prayers for him. I asked for me. I asked him because I think that anyone who has gone through challenges like that must be very close to God. I asked him because I wanted his intercession. I mean, are you... It's unreal. Just unbelievable. (laughs) That's too much. You can't make it up. So there's that. And then the other one is the little tidbit we ran in. I don't know if we'd talked about that on the podcast before, Sarah. Had we ever done Coco the Gorilla on the podcast? No, but RJ and I are going to be dry heaving if you tell us another story like that. One more story. One more story. (laughs) I'm going to have a good cry. And then the rest of my day is going to be just amazing. This is a lot on air, man. A lot on air. Well, we highlighted this the other day. It was in the weekender because, you know, Mr. Rogers got a stamp coming out from the Postal Service. Mm -hmm. This is something that he wrote about. Uh, He said it was years ago and Joanne, the woman who became his wife, and I were worshiping in a little church with friends of ours. People, by the way, listeners know that he was an ordained Presbyterian minister and that his children's work was he was sort of a missionary actually sent out to do that work. Uh, We were worshiping in a little church with friends of ours. We were on vacation and I was in the middle of my homiletics course at the time, which is a course on preaching. During the sermon, I kept ticking off every mistake I thought the preacher, he must have been 80 years old, was making. When this interminable sermon finally ended, I turned to my friend, intending to say something critical about the sermon. Then I stopped myself when I saw the tears running down her face. She whispered to me, he said exactly what I needed to hear. That was a seminal experience for me. I was judging and she was needing. And the Holy Spirit responded to need, not to judgment. (laughs) What? (laughs) 
Okay, maybe he was actually Jesus. Right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what? We missed it. The second coming is That's, coming. Oh, man, we are so like Jesus. I don't know what. I, I listen to those stories. I guess as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking the thing that's most Christ-like about him is just he never was in a hurry. He never seemed to be in a hurry at yeah. all. You know, there was that clip in the preview with that little girl. Mr. Rogers, can I tell you something? I like you. I'm expecting to be like, oh, thank you so much, and then turn to the next thing. But he goes, oh, thank you so much for saying that. I really like you, too. And just really staying in the moment with this little girl when there's tons of other stuff going on all around. And I struggle with that, you mm-hmm. know, because I'm always like, okay, I'm talking to this person, but what about that person? And what mm-hmm. about that person? What about that person? I want to reach them all at once. And he's just not in a hurry. You know, it's a real sign of faith in God and of his own limitations and that the power of just paying attention. I mean, thunderstruck is the right word, I think. What people respond to in Mr. Rogers, I believe they're responding to something about Jesus. You know, we all catch whiffs of that every once in a while in someone, maybe unexpectedly. The fact that this character would show up in public television and be on the air and inspire people across the board and bridge so many divides and do it in this gentle way that was you know, very courageous, in fact. We think courage is always taking a stand and doing this X, Y, or the other and making a statement. And here's Mr. Rogers just going about his business in this gentle, you're right, he's not in a hurry. Mm-hmm. It's so convicting for me personally. It's almost like you see goodness and it's like, get away from me, I am a sinful man. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, you you wouldn't want to watch my children's show. You know, <laughs> the world has been scared. Maybe just me being like, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. That would be the whole for 30 minutes. We gotta go, we're late. I'm teaching Sunday school over and over. Thinking about you see Jesus, it made me think of another, it's not about Mr. Rogers, but there was another really encouraging kind of semi-pop culture thing I listened to this week. Did you guys hear the Fresh Air podcast with Bart Ehrman Mm-mm. this week. No, a lot of which people is like, sent that to me too. It's crazy. It's like danger zone, danger zone. You know, Terry Gross, Bart Ehrman, two people that don't seem very friendly to Christianity necessarily, but he just wrote a new book about the first four centuries of Christianity called The Triumph of Christianity. And basically what he says is that, you know, for the first four centuries, Christianity spread exclusively through people voluntarily converting because of the power of the message of love and all these miracles that were being performed. And oh, by the way, when Constantine finally converted, he signed a treaty with a pagan emperor, which is the first statement in the history of the world guaranteeing the right of freedom of religion. You know, it's just like, what is going on here? You know, it it was one of those things, like here I had these two people who were definitely not Christians, in some ways kind of anti-Christian, and yet when they try to tell the honest story about what the church looked like and the ministry of Jesus, at least in the first sort of four centuries, it's really, really good. You know, it's not perfect, Mm. but it's good. And even things like, you know, that the Roman pagan world was totally Nietzschean. It was totally about power and people taking advantage of each other. And these Christians come in and for the first time, they're like, no, everyone is equally valuable. The poor matter. We're going to take care of people. We're going to love them. Turning the pagan view of the world completely upside down. I was dumbstruck and so encouraged. So... That's a little off off topic, but another thing in pop no, culture that just that. Test, testifying to Jesus, and I I recommend it if you if people haven't listened to it. I mean, it makes me think of the whole thing with the swimming pool because it makes me think of how people say, "Well, there just aren't miracles anymore." You know, people don't get healed the way they used to get healed, and blah 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 blah. blah. And it's like, well, what if God knows that we have modern medicine, and what if God knows that the miracles we actually need are like. Mr. Rogers. Like, what if, you know, we're all like too busy, like we'll get there later, but deconstructing things to realize, you know what I mean? That that's actually what's happening right in front of us. Um, 
That's, wow, that's really powerful, Sarah. I think that the only difficulty with someone like this Fred Rogers thing coming out, and I'm sure it's going to create a stir, is that when I say what people are responding to is Jesus, I think that can almost be heard as like we take ownership of him. Like if you, yes. if you, yes. if you like Mr. Rogers, then you have to like Jesus and stuff like that. And this is one of those cases where you're clearly not saying that. The, right. the only corollary you have, culturally speaking, to say nothing theologically, but this is what I imagine was engaging about Christ in person, was yes. this sort of yes. gentleness mixed with courage. It's not like, hey, guess what? If you, Mr. Rogers brought everyone together, Christians bring everyone apart, but guess what? Secretly, he was Jesus. You know, that's not what you're saying. All you're trying to say is that trying to translate Jesus into a modern context, it looks a little like this, and it's the only reference point I think I can find. It's not Gandhi. It's Mm-mm. Jesus. And it ain't us yelling at each other with signs. <laughs> well, that's actually a good lead into the second topic, which is Connor Gwynn, our friend and contributor to Mockingbird, wrote this article for the website called Closer Than You Think, The Trouble with Deconstruction. And I saw it go up on Monday and I'd heard it was going up and he told me about it, but I kind of didn't expect it to get quite the response it got. And it really got a lot of response sort of for us as a website, you know, a thousand shares on Facebook and lots of people on Twitter going nuts. And what he was talking about, I'll read to you first. He says, at some point in the last 10 years... Doubt began to be the prerequisite for a quote-unquote authentic Christian life. And what he's saying there, because I think of people that got a little confused here, he's referring to the sort of rise of podcasts and books and speakers who are almost glamorizing doubt as this wonderful thing. And doubt and faith aren't opposites. And I mean, I've used these words myself, but he was talking about, if you want to use a reference point, like a Rachel Held Evans type, the liturgists, people that by and large are fine, but taken to Together, it represents what he would say, this lionization or glorification of doubt. And he said, deconstruction is the seed of this doubt. The problem with the rise of deconstruction, at least in the mainline denominations in which he lives and moves, is that there is nothing to deconstruct. He writes, my first reaction to deconstructionism was to jump right in. I was attracted to the rationality and academic mindedness of the practice. It seemed like something smart people did. And God knows I want to be seen as smart. That's such a good line. (laughs) I know. What I quickly realized was that I had nothing to deconstruct. I had no damaging religious beliefs. This was in part because my religious beliefs growing up were seldom deep enough to do damage or to be transformative. And now he's speaking again about a mainline Protestant context here. He says, we've become so wary of proclaiming a damaging religion that we end up proclaiming no religion at all. Instead, we proclaim the new social movement to join up with or the cause celebre uh, on which to take a stand. We declare that Jesus wants to co-sign our political positions and make us good citizens. We reject the demands of the Christian faith without having ever given in to them. We deconstruct the Christian life without having ever lived it. You cannot deconstruct an unconstructed faith, just like you cannot give away something you haven't got. He closes by saying, the work of the church is not deconstruction. The work of the church is not even formation alone. The work of the church is the proclamation of the gospel over and over Again, Now, before I hear from you guys, let me just say that there were a lot of comments under the article. We usually don't encourage comments, <laughs> but people were very confused, I think, in that the word deconstruction here is not actually referring to Derrida and the philosophical deconstructionism by which you, you know, 
break things down into binaries and you kind of figure out what think terms are freighted and you, you live I'm in the so tension right now. <laughs> That'll preach. That'll preach right there. Keep going. Deconstruction has been borrowed. It's the common usage of it, at least in these sort of post evangelical circles. And that's almost all what it is. There's some post Catholics. It's almost always a euphemism for either deconversion or supreme liberalization of your ideas. Uh, Bart Ehrmanization, perhaps. Usually it goes along with coming into the Episcopal Church. So we have this funny perspective on it, but it's not actually the same thing. And I understand why people get hung up on that. But Connor wasn't using it. He was using the common usage that you search deconstruction podcasts and you'll find these and you won't find almost anything about Derrida. So that said, what do you guys think about what Connor talked about. David, you're so gracious. People wanted to do that so they didn't have to deal with the painful truth of the article. So they were like, here's a cool way to sidestep it. I loved this piece. I shared it immediately. There was so much conversation underneath it that was really, really interesting. I mean, I felt like Connor was speaking for me because you know, I grew up in the Episcopal church. I grew up with kind of wishy-washy stuff a lot. And I mean, I remember reading Paul for the first time in my early twenties and being like, no one told me this was in here. And then I got to seminary and it was like, I had to give it all up already. I mean, you know, I feel like I've talked about this podcast, having the professor of old Testament talk about how, you know, all you Christians think that the suffering servant and Isaiah is Jesus, but he's not. And people started like weeping and he gave all the historical reasons why. And, you know, it was just awful. It was like, well, but we had, I, w- I just felt like you're not even giving me the goodness of this. You're just giving me the badness. Like, I don't even have anything to sustain me with what you're telling me. So I found his piece so compelling. The other comments that were in there that were interesting, and I'm Facebook friends with Connor, and he sort of engaged this in a really lovely and respectful way. But, you know, there are people who grew up in fundamentalist, really intense households. And for them, sort of pulling things apart in church has been helpful. Mm. And so I get that argument, but people who are like, trying, I don't know, it sets off all my Yale alarms. When the academia stuff comes in, I'm like, oh, look, we don't want to actually talk about sin, suffering, and Jesus. So... There's this guy whose name I can't pronounce that David keeps saying. And so we'll talk about him, you know? So anyway, those are my thoughts. Yeah. (laughs) Arge? Moi. I found it, uh, I found it convicting in the sense of like, you know, I also want to appear smart and making sure that when I'm uh, preparing my sermons that I'm trying to be helpful and not showy. You know, not trying to prove something. It made me think about Billy Graham a little bit and how he just proclaimed the simple message over and over and over and over again because it wasn't about him. It was about Jesus. And obviously, I agree with everything he said about we're here to proclaim Jesus. That's what we're here to do. I do think there's a place for deconstruction. But what we deconstruct are the lies that the world wants to feed us, you know, that the lies that our hearts and our consciences want to feed us, the things that we're told to put our faith in that will always disappoint us, the things that will never bring us hope or peace or joy. Mm. So I think there is a powerful place for deconstruction. You can even deconstruct yourself or the church, but you don't deconstruct Jesus Mm. or the message. And in my experience, because it is true, the Episcopal Church, of which, you know, I guess we're all a part, does draw a lot of people who were wounded by more aggressive and hostile churches. But what I found helpful is not so much deconstruction as just good news, pointing them to the Bible. Like you said, be like, this is actually in here. 
It's right. too good to be true. And thank God it's written down because if it wasn't, I wouldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. But right. here it is over and over and over again. Here's Jesus loving the unlovable. Here's Paul talking about Jesus dying for the ungodly and being the friend of sinners. And, you know, I don't do what I should do. And what I shouldn't do, I find myself doing over and over again. I know what you mean. Like every time you go back and read those passages, you're like, oh my gosh, it might actually be true because here it is. Mm-hmm. Just pointing people to the good news rather than, you know, spending all your time like deconstructing something that, because you don't know where people are at. You don't know what they're dealing with. Yeah. The other big response I got that was interesting with several people, and I have had experiences like this with mainline clergy, people who had come to clergy in a real time of need and doubt and said, I'm not sure I believe this stuff. I don't know if I love Jesus enough. I don't know if Jesus loves me. And those clergy responding out of this kind of deconstructionist mode that frankly, a lot of us have just been taught in seminaries and them saying like, I don't know if I believe it either. You know what I mean? And like, (laughs) instead of saying... Like, no, you're loved. Like, it's done. It's Mm. already been done. And your feelings don't matter one way or the other. Like, just to give them that good news, to give them the gospel, you know, honestly, just a a little PSA. But if, like, you're not sure about Jesus, like, start selling insurance. You know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, don't inflict that on people. It's interesting. It really did get me thinking a lot about Mockingbird as well, because I know for a fact that Mockingbird has served a deconstructing purpose for a lot of people. Yes. And I never want to be the road out of the Christian faith for folks or right. not me, Mockingbird. Mm. And sometimes I've gotten that sense that people who've got a chip on their shoulder have been wounded, who have got every reason in the world to be mad about religion, find some sense of superiority perhaps, or I think we serve a healthy deconstructive purpose when the law and gospel paradigm, the grace paradigm is sort of revealing all all these things that you thought were gospel, but were actually law. And that's why you feel so terrible all the time. Yes. That kind of deconstruction is really good. And I think that we're speaking from a place where I've, at least over the years, the amount of horror stories I've heard of people who've told me, well, I never heard this, or this is what was told to me. And this is why Mockingbird has been so helpful. I want to honor that and give so much compassion to people who it's amazing that they maintained any kind of faith and that deconstruction has served a tremendously important purpose and a form of grace to them is the permission to doubt. I think that that's huge. The other thing that I think, though, you always hear, you know, Christianity is really just, I believe, help my unbelief. I think there's truth to that, that we all, no one's like ironclad belief one second, you know, all the time. Or, But that father in that story was not saying, I believe, please validate my unbelief. You know, it wasn't He was saying, this unbelief is painful. Mm -hmm. Unbelief is the root of sin. Unbelief is awful. Unbelief is real. It's true. And the extent to which we deny it will make it usually worse. It will fester. It will get weird. There's also, though, what I find obnoxious about the deconstructionism. I have this enormous amount of compassion for people who are kind of trying to figure it out and coming to terms with their childhood and their parents and their worlds and everything about it. But the thing that I roll my eyes about is I do think that there is a little bit of superiority that comes along with it and they act as though there's not. Because if you actually do follow Derrida, you know, Thank you don't for glaze over. In terms of understanding language, you boil things down to the binaries. And so you have this word doubt, right? And then you have what's the inverse of it? It Maybe it's faith, or maybe it was faith, or maybe it's uh, certainty. I don't know, but you have doubt, certainty. Then you think about are these freighted with any moral judgments? Is it better? 
inherently better to be equal or unequal. We usually think, oh, equal, you know, except for unless you're talking about your child, you know, it's always more complicated. But in the sort of world of NPR that RJ is talking about, the world in which most of us live, doubt is actually seen as morally better yes. than belief or certainty. And so you're not approaching these things, this dichotomy with anything remotely resembling an objective mind. And you talk about how you're bringing all of these objective, reasonable, you're not checking your mind at the door, but you're not. You're just switching them out for a different set of biases. And so that was the other thing I think, and it was it was embodied to me a little bit in this show, AP Bio, this terrible sitcom that's out right now from one, uh-huh. one of the guys from It's Always Sunny's in it. And he's this Harvard professor who's been brought low and his great nemesis who's still at Harvard and won the MacArthur Genius Foundation has this best-selling book out and the title of it is The Question Is the Answer. And you just want to say it's clearly like that is the stand-in for every kind of self-important, nonsensical person who doesn't really have anything to say outside of they know what they don't want to say. So it's never as simple as these things. I just want to acknowledge those things, the compassion as well as the superiority. Well, it made me think about that Fresh Air episode again, because it was interesting to watch sort of Bart Ehrman and Tergros do this dance where they were like, you know, yes, okay, one of the bad things that the early Christians did, especially when they came into power, is they started to sort of outlaw pagan practices or they took down pagan shrines and how much was lost of this great pagan tradition, while also recognizing that like a lot of the belief system of paganism was like pro-power, pro-slavery, pro-abuse. It was all about power. And it's a weird thing to say. I mean, the reason people hold on to doubt over certainty is because they're convinced that certainty leads to violence, right? That if you are convinced that you are right and someone else is not right, then it leads to sort of dehumanization. It's a justification of violence or, mm-hmm. or prejudice or marginalization or whatever. But what I want to say is, no, when you have certitude about Jesus, it leads to the inverse of all those things, unless you you enter in sort of a, a kind of Christianism that has nothing to do with the Bible. You know, if you're a Christian who believes in Jesus, but the Jesus you believe in is completely disconnected from anything that's written in the Bible, then you might become prejudiced or obsessed with power or willing to subject someone who doesn't believe the same thing you do. But if you're staying true to what Jesus actually taught about turning the other cheek, about self-sacrifice, about, you know, pacifism, generosity, emptying yourself, I just don't see how it would be possible to be certain about that and yet have any sort of triumphalistic attitude. Am I making sense at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all I can think is like, then you're Mr. Rogers. I mean, you know what I mean? Like then it's interesting. I did the 7 a.m. service here at the church this morning. And I keep thinking about the gospel passage from John. And it's sort of this, you know, Jesus is telling them that Abraham has sort of overcome death in this way. And Jesus is talking about who he is and how he knows Abraham. And they sort of freak out and they start to say, well, if you say this is true and you say that's true, then you're a liar. And it was interesting to read it given this article that Connor wrote because it was like, oh, like the Pharisees are already deconstructing Christianity, right? They're already saying, well, you haven't met these stipulations and you're not doing this the way it's supposed to happen. So like we've decided this isn't working. And that's the fascinating thing to me. And it is why sort of deconstructionist stuff. And I was exposed to so much of it in seminary. It doesn't really threaten me because we can just deconstruct as much as we want, but Jesus is still standing there at the end of it, which Mm, is like the crazy thing. You know what I mean? Like he's still standing there. I mean, do I like often write sermons and I'm like quoting Jesus and I'm thinking, Oh, this is a 2000 year old rabbi. This is kind of weird. 
yeah, sure. But then I'm like, yeah, but it's, I'm like clinging to the cross in the midst of it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just, I don't know. I, this mode for deconstruction, we want to act like this is such a modern thing. And in some ways it is, and you know, people commented on Congress, you know, it's really enlightenment. It's not deconstruction. No, it's just what people do. People see the gospel and they're like, oh, I have to admit that I'm bad and I need some outside help. No, thank you. Can we like use some academic words? Like, Yeah, I, I think it's actually kind of incredible that we're talking about this going into Holy Week. My favorite Holy Week article of the last couple of years was, I mean, we've run a bunch of great ones, but the one that Giles Frazier wrote in The Guardian about Christianity being a religion of losers. He writes this, he says, the Christian story like the best sort of terrifying psychoanalysis strips you down to nothing in order for you to face mm. yourself anew. I mean, that's not deconstruction, right. mm-hmm. but including, by the way, to be sound clever, but not really trying to be, but it's, you're deconstructing your deconstructive instinct. Be suspicious of that. Doubt your doubts is how John Jeremiah Sullivan says it. That's what I'm wanting to get across here because the courage and the cultural validation, I'm much more interested in meeting people who are sort of reconstructed than those who are deconstructed, but there's just, they're much more interesting. For it turns out that losers are not despised or rejected, not ultimately. In fact, losers can discover something about themselves that winners cannot ever appreciate that they are loved and wanted simply because of who they are and not because of what they achieve. I mean, we're in Mr. Rogers' territory here. This is revealed precisely at the greatest point of dejection. He's referring to the cross. The resurrection is not a conjuring trick with bones. It is a revelation that love is stronger than death, that human worth is not indexed to worldly success. If I am right about the meaning of Christ's passion, then a church is at its best when it fails, when it gives up on all the ecclesiastical glitter, when the weeds start to break through the floor, when it shows others that failure is absolutely nothing of the sort. This is the site of real triumph, the moment of success. Failure is redeemed. Hallelujah. I feel like I don't know how your weeks are right now, but I feel like leading up to Holy Week is always like super intense in our household and not because we do any of the weird stuff people do at home around Lent because we don't, but I'm sure it's great for you if you're listening to the podcast and you like make your kids give up stuff and whatever. But, um, (laughs) we, that sounded sincere. Yeah. Things are always just intense at our household, you know, right before it happens. And so there's this like thing that happens on Monday, Thursday, where I feel like we literally give up. Do you know what I mean? Like you just like step into that service and it's just like, oh, right. This is happening. Like it just every time it's like, it's like, this is happening. I mean, I think I've talked about before, like Monty Thursday is the first service I really remember as a kid. We didn't go to a lot of Holy Week stuff. You know, my parents were Baptist growing up. So for them, it was like, Easter seems good enough. But one year we went to Monday Thursday and it was, I just sat there as a child and wept. I mean, it's just so incredibly moving. So it's always that mixed bag of like, I'm really excited about it. I'm excited to step into that. And it's also such an intense space. So RJ, what are your Holy Week thoughts for us? Are you guys making stigmata cookies or? Oh, done. Already made. Too late. (laughs) My thought was just as you were reading that wonderful article from The Guardian, what he's essentially saying is, you know, we've been talking about us deconstructing Christianity or Jesus, but actually what Holy Week is, is it's him deconstructing us. It's him coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and receiving everything we would ever want, you know, accolades, glory, shouting, praise. 
And then the rest of the week is just a downward spiral, which shows us that everything we think we want, everything we think matters, and at the end of the day, everything that enslaves us and makes us miserable is worthless. It doesn't mean anything, and he's going to conquer it all, and he's going to do it alone in spite of us. Um, and the only part we play is we're happy to help him along his way to the cross and nail him there. I remember reading that Guardian article a few years ago and being kind of blown away by it. I'm going to read that again and think on that as we head into this week. The church is at its best when it's failing. Is that what he said? Mm. And that's sort of the starting point of Connor's article, actually, or one he posted recently about the church being sort of, we only have 23 Easter's left, the mainline church, if things don't slow down the decline. Yeah. And there's something incredibly freeing about that idea because, I mean, I don't know about you guys, I spend a lot of my time trying to prop things up or mm. make them seem better than they actually are or putting my best foot forward or, you know, in order to be successful, one must project the image of success right. at all times, to quote American beauty. Christianity is just the end of that. It's the end of all that. And it's the beginning of true freedom. So I'm hoping for that. That would be nice this week. <laughs> I think that's probably a great place to end. I want to tell you guys two things. New York is coming up very soon, and I can't wait to see you there. Folks who are signed up should know that the Babette's Feast special showing, there's only a couple of tickets left, so if people want those, they need to act quickly. The humor issue, proof arrived right before I got on this cast, and man, it just, I, I cannot wait for people to see it. It is really something else. Ethan has knocked himself out, but it also looks so so incredibly good. It's not it's not deconstructed in the slightest. And then thirdly is I got to test drive the mocking app, the app that we're making for the website that'll have the podcasts involved in it and the devotional preloaded. I got to test drive it this week and it it too is um you know it's not for losers it's it is awesome. for winners we're <laughs> so we're getting better and better as the as uh, christ gets closer and closer to the cross yeah. so maybe there's some poetry there but guys i hope you have a great holy week and um oh we will i think we are going to do a special humor issue episode that ethan's putting together with contributors to that magazine so people can listen for that but have a blessed triduum is that what they say is that sure. how you say that word I thought it was always Triduum, something like that. (laughs) I just say okra. I'm a blessed okra. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group, and if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.